When life is difficult, Samaritans are here. Day or night, 365 days a year. You can call them for free on 116 123. Email them at joe at or visit Whatever you're facing, the Samaritans are here to listen. Welcome to the Beer Podcast. My name's Nick Mins. Uh, on tonight's podcast, I'm lucky to be joined by Sarah Kelly. She is, let me just get this right. She is a, um, she is a, there we go, ADHD mindset coach um, and a neuroencoding specialist. There we go. Got that out of the way. That was a mouthful, wasn't it, really? So, yeah. So, thank you very much for coming on, Sarah, all the way from Canada. You're in it. Is it Canada? Yeah, Vancouver, Canada. Wow, what's the weather like there at the moment? Uh, it's about four degrees, sunny today. <laughs> well, about the same in the UK at the minute as well, so we're not too not too different there. So, yeah. um, really, Sarah, if you want to just uh, start by just going through a little bit of your experience with with um, with ADHD on the podcast at the minute, um, I've been delving into. Um, the more neurodivergent side of things. I have covered mental health a lot, which has been um, one of the things that my journey has been about. But um, just in August, I uh, found out that I was ADHD. So I've been wanting to get as many people on who um, have had um, kind of experience with neurodivergency to kind of talk as well. So if you want to just tell us a little bit about your experiences. Yeah. Um, so I'm currently 46 and I found out that I had ADHD two years ago, which is generational in my family. Um, my dad has ADHD undiagnosed, but, and I don't want to play yeah. a psychiatrist, <laughs> but all the markers, he, um, he was quite abused as a child mentally and, and physically by his dad. And he was just a very impulsive guy. So he started sniffing glue when he was eight and um, really led a life of crime. Um, he definitely had businesses and stuff at some point, but now the drugs have just completely overtaken him. So my dad wasn't in my life a whole bunch growing up. Uh, and then my mom, my biological mom was killed in a car accident when I was young. So I, I didn't really have a conventional family. And then also when I was, you know, growing up in the, you know, 80s and 90s, or late 70s, 80s and 90s, like mental health wasn't really a thing. And ADHD presents very, very differently in females than it does males. So it was just missed um, for me uh, due to like, I think the time period and a lack of parental, you know, positive parental care. And so <clears throat> I have two children who also have ADHD. And I remember going to a parent teacher conference with my eldest when she was in grade four and the teacher said, you know, I think your daughter has ADHD. And I was like, no. And then just dismissed it, which would have made everyone's life so much easier if we, you know, I would have dug into it a little bit, but again, just so ignorant to mental health. And so both of my kids have been diagnosed with ADHD. Um, I'm actually ADHD autistic. I, I've just recently found out. And so the way that I cope with my ADHD in my, you know, 20s, 30s, and, you know, beginning of my 40s as um, 
just really kind of turning into a hermit, a ton of social anxiety, um, had a drinking problem for a little while, self-medicating, specifically when I had to be out around people because I had so much anxiety and I was just like, okay, I'm more fun if I have a couple of drinks. I'm not so socially awkward and feeling and feeling weird. Um, but then through learning that my kids had ADHD and my daughter being so proactive with her own mental health, I really started doing a deep dive into it. And it's kind of ironic because for the past five or six years, I've been really trying to get out of this rut that I'm in because for me, ADHD manifested heavily as depression and anxiety, but I also had a traumatic childhood. So not really knowing where those lines um, are was, you know, it, it made it harder to diagnose for sure. And so I just started reading all these mindfulness books and they all felt very ableist to me because there's this like hustle culture and well, just be happy and, and all of the good things are going to come to you. But when you're neurodivergent, we have a very different way of processing things. And so it does kind of fall into that ableism, you know, umbrella a little bit, because when you're telling someone who's on the floor to just feel better and write affirmations, like that doesn't work. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and so I did get a, uh, a few life coaching certificates and, and the neuroencoding um, certificate and just really got into trying to figure out, you know, neuroplasticity to a, to a very small extent and how to rewire those neuropathways that were so negative for me. Um, and so that's where, where I'm, you know, now in is, is doing ADHD coaching for women who are diagnosed later in life because there is the executive dysfunctioning that we struggle with, but there's also the neurodivergent trauma. And that's not a coined term. I, I actually heard that from Dr. Joey Lawrence. She's an Australia, Australian um, psychologist with ADHD and autism. And how we're treated by our peers, how we're treated by our parents, specifically being raised before mental health was something that we really paid attention to how our teachers treated us, it, it just really affects. So there's the executive dysfunction on the one hand, but then there's this fear of screwing up on the other. And so I'm not sure exactly where the line is. Obviously I'm not, you know, a, a neuropsychologist or anything like that, but I do feel like a lot of women or a lot of people like me, you know, finding out they have ADHD later in life, we receive that much more negative feedback we don't believe in ourselves. We're scared of screwing things up. We always know we're a little bit different. We're kind of like that square being put into a circle. It doesn't quite fit. And so for me, I just became so obsessed with trying to figure out how to get my own mindset into a healthier place because I knew I didn't want to drink anymore. I knew my kids were watching me and, you know, the quality of life that I had just wasn't there. So I think I answered your question very ADHD style. <laughs> that that's do you know what that's the best way to answer them questions? I okay. found that completely. Okay. So I mean, um, so if you kind of trace back, I mean, what when was can you kind of start to see where you were first um kind of showing signs of ADHD? Was it kind of quite early on or was was kind of when because when I got diagnosed and and when I actually started looking back, I started realizing that there was maybe traits from when I was maybe 12, 13, which I didn't really even think were a possibility that there could have been ADHD, you know, but it actually turned out that, you know, they were. So where did your kind of, did you be able to trace it back to? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely 
there were moments in childhood, um, I had the messiest bedroom in the world. And, you know, it was my way of finding things, but also maybe a little bit of hoarding behavior back then. Now I'm a minimalist. Um, so that, and then, you know, as far as the autism, like I've just gone through that whole process with embrace autism for the diagnosis to be diagnosed when people would come to our home when I was younger and I didn't know them, I would hide in the bedroom. I didn't want to see anybody knew it scared me. Like people scared me. So, I mean, now, you know, reflecting on things from my childhood, definitely I can link almost everything back to either ADHD, autism, or, or, you know, potentially trauma, like so many aha moments, which has been really empowering for me because I've always known that things were just a little bit harder for me. It was harder for me to fit in. It was harder for me to, I'd say something and think it was funny and no one would get my joke or they'd joke and I wouldn't get it or I'd talk too much. And so now it, it's just been like, oh, okay. I mean, there's a little bit of, I guess, a mourning period as well, where it had I known when I was younger, maybe things could have been easier. And, you know, I've talked to tons of women, you know, at this point, a hundred women who have all said the same thing. Like you go through this almost mourning period of, you know, I wonder what life would have been like if I would have known. Um, luckily I've, I've got such a collection of like positivity that I've read and learned about. And I'm just like, okay, I get to seize the day. What, what happened before I, I can't do anything about. And, you know, throwing myself that pity party. I mean, there's moments where you have to kind of go, okay, yeah, I got, I got Delta short stick in this. But sitting in that doesn't serve you at all. Like it's it's a complete waste of energy. So for me, the aha moments I really try to look at with, oh, now I understand myself a little bit more and that's cool. Instead of looking at it of how maybe I was shortchanged. I mean, that, that's a great way to look at it because even when I kind of think back to some of the traits that I, I'd, I'd shown of like not sitting still, always wanting to be creative, always wanting music, always tapping and things like this, um, you know, a little bit of a fidgeter. It, when I got diagnosed, it, it was a bit of a kind of, that kind of moment of, oh God, now it's something else to deal with. But it was maybe about, a, only about a day or so after, I kind of started just connecting little dots and thinking, wow, that explains quite a lot of how I was when I was younger. And I think the more I've kind of come to terms with it, the more I kind of feel like it's completed these little gaps where I've maybe thought, I don't understand why that was like that. And was that part of my, my, mental, my mental health at the time? Or was it this? Was it that? And now it kind of makes sense. So I kind of feel like that journey's kind of been almost like all them little bridges have been kind of built up and, and now it's all complete. Um, So you talk about kind of trauma being a, a big thing. So how old did would you say when, when your mum passed away? Uh, my mum got killed in a car accident just before I turned two years old. Right. Okay. So that yeah. was, that was kind of quite early on. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't remember her. And my dad quickly got into a new relationship and the woman that he married, um, I'll just leave it at the emotional maturity and her trauma very much affected my childhood. Right. I have yeah, a very good so. relationship with my half sister. So I'll leave it at that. It's a bit juicier, <laughs> but we'll leave it at that. Um, yeah. So, do you think that because I've, I've I've heard this quite a bit now with with individuals talking about trauma playing like a big part in in especially with like mental health and also 
in things developing like um like ADHD, like kind of if you like the symptoms being if you kind of exaggerated slightly. So do do you think that's kind of a thing that's maybe happened with yourself? That my reactions were exaggerated? Suppose uh, exacerbated. There we go. That might make a bit more yeah. sense. So it's kind of been kind of brought on at an earlier stage, if you like, through yeah. the through the trauma that's happened. Oh, I mean, I think that a lot of, you know, how we're nurtured when we're growing up, you know, not just nurtured by our, our parents and our teachers, but also how our peers have received us. It it sticks with us. Like we all have we are all constantly speaking to ourselves. We have this little voice inside our head. And, you know, an example would be my attention to detail is, is not wonderful. I, I tend to rush through things and, and miss dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And so when I would do that in school and I would get the feedback of, oh, she rushes and, and whatever, I mean, I chalked that up to, I was just stupid. And so I would, I would start saying that to myself, like, oh, you screwed that up again. You're, you're stupid. Or, oh, you rushed through that again and messed that up. And so, I mean, when it comes to like, you know, rejection sensitivity, which, you know, obviously most of us know isn't in the DSM, but perceived or actual rejection. I mean, it makes us scared to put ourselves out there. Uh, you know, my task, my task completion or task initiation issues. I mean, there's definitely the executive functioning part. If I'm into it, I'm into it. I want to do it. But if I, it's mundane, it's not so much. But there's also this like fear of failure because I don't want to hear any more negative feedback. And that's where I think like the neurodivergent trauma comes in is we're constantly being told that we're too much. We're not enough. We're, you know, we talk too much. We're messy. We're, we're not reliable. We're lazy. How much of it is executive dysfunction and how much of it is it just going, gosh, every time I move, someone's saying they something negative to me right like i think it is a mixture so and then us adhders we feel our feelings really big right because we we don't have the capability to e easily emotionally regulate our feelings and so like a, a little a little flick can feel like a punch in the gut sometimes right like and and so yeah i i do think that like we have been trying to you know, just live in this neurotypical world. And we're always the people who has to change to fit in, which is why masking is such a big thing. And I just think it's so wonderful that there's so many people, you know, like yourself, and it's specifically in the UK, you know, North America really needs to catch up that are talking about neurodiversity and autism and ADHD and, you know, bipolar and all of the things under the neurodivergent umbrella, because why should we have to change to feel everyone else? Why can't we be accommodated at all? I said that it's a really good point. I mean, I mean, in, in the UK, I mean, I wouldn't have really even known much about this if I hadn't have gone to university at such a late age, worked 20 years in retail, in supermarkets, and just kind of thought, I had a kind of breakdown in 2020, and I kind of thought things need to change. Things need to kind of happen, and going to university I found it kind of quite difficult at first obviously it was in the when I went first it was 2020 so it was during the lockdown so everything was all online I wasn't mixing with people um so that was a, a an odd an odd start but then I started realizing little things when I was trying to kind of concentrate on lectures you know that I couldn't focus properly that that height that I could, I could only really hyper focus on things which really you know gauged me um 
And if I felt engaged within that, I was okay. But otherwise, I'd be watching a lecture slide and then 10 minutes have passed. And then where's that 10 minutes gone? You know, and I've I've thought of a hundred different brilliant ideas to do with myself, but it's nothing to do with what's going on in the room itself. I thought, oh, I could do this at home. I could do this here and this, that, there. And, you know, you just kind of lose yourself. Um, so it wasn't until I'd kind of gone to uni that I actually started questioning these things. And luckily, university had, had, had said about possibly getting a, a test and, and having having an assessment, which, you know, I was, I was, I just didn't really think much of it. I thought must be my mental health, must be be, my depression and my anxiety. Because it is funny as well, like even in the UK, how many people say that they've kind of put everything down to that kind of thing of mental health and that spiral of anxiety, which has actually come out to be ADHD as well. So, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are like in in America for kind of late diagnosis, but in the UK at the moment is is very high for, for like later life diagnosis of, um, of like ADHD and autism as well. Mm-hmm. But I suppose it's like you said, a generational thing, didn't you? Like it needs. Oh, it's like, very hereditary. Yeah. I'm, very I'm hereditary. pretty sure that I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that my dad, as ADHD and and it's funny that once once you kind of you'll probably do it as well is once you have you you know you're kind of neurodivergent you start looking at people and the little actions that they're doing or some of the mannerisms and I mean I'm pretty sure that quite possibly my dad has ADHD and quite possibly my brother as well so again thinking that there's a possibility that's a, a generational thing that's happening there so if we so pardon me so looking now at kind of where you are now so neuro encoding I, I saw that and i was i was quite intrigued by what what kind of is is, is the neuro encoding part of uh, and it's just a co- course that i took um and basically the premise of it is it it's like a simplified neuroplasticity right just that if you change your thoughts, if you change your perspective and way of looking at things, um, you change your life. We we all get so trapped in this confirmation bias. Um, and so when I link that back to ADHD, you know, and we're talking about all the negative feedback that a young person receives when they have ADHD, whether they know about that they have it or they don't know that they have it, um, you start looking for that. And you know, wherever your, you know, energy go, your attention goes, energy will flow. And so if we say have RSD about something and, you know, rejection, maybe someone, you know, doesn't text you back when, when they're supposed to or cancels plans on yours and just kind of silly examples, but, you know, then we start going, oh my gosh, well, I bet you that, that they don't like me or they're saying this and you start flooding your mind with all these things. Um, that creates a confirmation bias and the particular activator is the part of your brain that takes an in information and sifts through it and says, okay, this is information that, that I want to keep. And this is information that I'm not going to keep because if we notice every single tree that we drove by on the way to work every day, our brain would be an overload. It doesn't matter if you're neurotypical or neurodivergent. And so what the reticular activator does is it sifts out information that's not relevant to you. And that's why, 
whenever you um, are in the market for say a new vehicle or a woman is pregnant or, or a husband gets or boyfriend gets a woman pregnant, you start seeing babies everywhere. There's no more babies when you're not with child than when you are with child, but your reticular activator is doing its job and it's looking for that. And so you're noticing, oh, I want to buy a Jeep. Now I'm going to see Jeeps everywhere. Oh, I'm having a baby. Now I see babies and pregnant women everywhere. And so that is our confirmation bias. So us with ADHD who have received that much more negative feedback, we're already dis emotionally, you know, emotionally dysregulated. We, we suffer with RSD. We suffer with all of these things. If we continuously hear negative feedback, we're going to find whatever we search for, even if we're not searching for it consciously. And so long-winded ADHD answer for the narrow encoding is just kind of tackling that a little bit more and saying, okay, you know, life isn't all rainbows and unicorns. We know that life is hard, especially now with the price of everything and, you know, just coming out of a pandemic and hopefully we're going to stay out of it. But what are we focusing our attention on? And it doesn't mean to be oblivious to the things that are hard in life, but how can we maybe reframe the things that we've gone through to look at it through the lens of this was a good lesson to learn. I won't make that mistake again. Or there is a blessing in disguise somewhere, even if I didn't see it right, right when it was happening. Um, and so I, that's, that's the, the premise of it is, is basically, you know, that kind of thing, just looking at things from a different lens than everyone's out to get me. I'm this failure in life. Nobody likes me. You know, I talk too much. I'm too much, whatever. The thing is, I mean, everything you said there, I've just, I've got a bit of a smile on my face because I just think, God, I relate to everything. Like, like when you said about people not texting you back quick enough, you know, like other of us not like me, I do that quite a lot. Like if, if, if I, and sometimes I think if I get that, you know, they've probably got things like they might be at work, they might be driving, they might be doing, you know, bathing the kids, they might be doing, you know, feeding the kids and stuff like that. But it's almost like, oh my god, they haven't got back straight away. Oh no, oh, what have I done? What have I done? Right, okay. So they, so what? And then I start searching for all these different things which I might have done, which I know I haven't done. But my brain seems to think, right, you must have done something. So let's just look for it. Um, and they say that fear of failure, I think as well, is 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 a big, 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 big one. Uh, I mean, I don't know if have you kind of had that kind of quite a bit oh my gosh yes yeah i mean i i have been paralyzed and canceled plans at the last minute and everything i mean mine is a lot of social anxiety um but definitely fear of failure like especially when you're entire like i, I don't for me i really struggle because like for someone for one human being to have the audacity to say to another human being what they feel their deficits are in their personality or, or how they show up in the world. Like that's something I personally wouldn't do. Um, but when you're continuously feeling like you're under that kind of lens and I've, I've done a really good job of attracting some not great people in my past who feel very comfortable telling me where I've come up short. It really did brainwash me to feel like, okay, well, this is just, this is now my self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm, I'm this screw up. I'm this person who's, you know, going to miss the mark on the attention to detail stuff or, um, 
be rejected in some way. It does. Like I really think neurodivergent trauma needs as much of a spotlight as the executive dysfunctions. It's, 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 it's so funny. Like when, when you talk about people kind of, it is almost like people reinforcing what you're actually feeling as well. So, and I think some, sometimes like when you say, if you kind of have the wrong people in, in, in your life, they do pick up on that and they'll know that your kind of insecurities feed into that as well slightly. So it kind of feeds the anxiety, but also that then kind of escalates and makes the, the kind of ADHD kick in your us. I mean, I, I have quite bad OCD at times with things. So then it kind of, that anxiety then picks up and then I kind of have to think about all these different, because obviously it's safety mechanisms. That's what your brain's trying to do. That's why it's kind of a coping mechanism, which has happened over time. But um, I have to ask this question because I, I, I get asked it quite a bit, especially with a fear of failure. And people always used to say to me, who are you afraid of failing? You know, what, who, so when you kind of say you're, 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 you've got a fear of failing, of failure, who is it that you're afraid to fail, if you like? Yeah. I mean, I think that my fear of failure in the past has come from trying to impress the wrong people. Right. Um, you know, these people who who feel like they have some kind of, you know, inherent right to to look at me and tell me how I should be or how I shouldn't be. Uh, I'm a lot more comfortable in my skin now than I was a few years ago. Uh, my, my new my new mantra is what you think of me is not my business. Because um, at the end of the day, most people are so consumed with themselves that they're not even noticing your flaws. I mean, a perfect example of that is a pimple on your face. You you see a little blemish and you're like, oh my gosh, it's like the size of the moon. Someone else is like, what are you talking about? Right? We're always going to look at ourselves through a more critical lens than is actual. And I think with ADHD, that that microscope, that lens is just that much stronger because we have gone through so much of our lives just being criticized, ridiculed, put down, outcasted. Um, told that we're, we're, you know, too much or not enough. And I really just think that it sticks with us. And so my passion is to help people rewrite their stories because it's nonsense, but yet it keeps us paralyzed. I, lo I love the way that you've, that you've looked at that as well. Like it's rewriting that story. So it isn't, if you're like scrubbing it all out and starting again, it's like, it's just rewriting it. It's just kind of changing little bits, which you maybe thought was a negative and putting them in a positive light. And, you know, I mean, when you got, um, obviously you got diagnosed with, do you say ADHD two years ago mm -hmm. and only recently with autism. Mm -hmm. So which one would you say out of the two probably hit your hardest or was it just that they just felt the same? Um, I think as far as my relationships, definitely the autism, um, because for me, it manifests extreme social anxiety. Like, you know, I mean, I have some sensory issues and stuff as well, but definitely the social anxiety of just, you know, knowing I'm different and I'm very blunt. I've been called rude because, you know, if someone asks me a question, I give a direct answer and it's very autistic <laughs> to be very straightforward and, and neurotypicals. 
when they ask you how they're doing they they don't actually want to know no they want you to say great the weather's nice or something like that and my brain is like oh okay well you know right now i have this pain and ache and i need to do this and this is putting you know but it's too much for people they don't want to hear it um as far as the adhd i think for me the the biggest thing is rsd the rejection and working memory uh and and it makes you question yourself actually i was so relieved when i found out that i had adhd because working memory for me is one of the biggest things like i have your name written on a post-it here (laughs) you know i need to prepare for things um and for a few years there i was terrified that i was getting some kind of early onset alzheimer's so when i learned about adhd and learned about working memory i mean i was so relieved because you know my brain may not be neurotypical but i want to keep it as much intact as possible you know while i'm in my prime years and um so yeah, I would say working memory for sure with the ADHD and the RSD, I, I can get quite affected by RSD. And then, yeah, the autism is like the social anxiety, which has definitely made it harder for me to have relationships with people. So yeah, so they're both, they're both had kind of, if you like a considerable, I suppose, I suppose effects on, on like, your, would you say they've had kind of negative effects or would you say... Because the way I the way I look at it, and and from what you've told me, is that you've you've kind of found out these things, but you've you've kind of turned it into a positive thing. Really, mm. it is just kind of completed you, if you like. You kind of know more about yourself. Do you think mm. that's giving you a lot more um, drive to kind of find out more about yourself and a little bit more about ADHD and all the different things that go with that? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I don't see the things that we just talked about as something that's debilitating to me where I'm, oh my goodness, like, this is so tough. I mean, these are challenges that I have and, and I'm aware of them and, you know, removing some of the blind spots when it comes to my own mental health is so empowering. Um, But I love being neurodivergent. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think that my ADHD gives me amazing creativity and um my autism gives me like a level of empathy that I don't think a lot of neurotypical people have it seems like neurotypical people understand cognitive empathy but with me like if I see a friend hurting it's like it's like I'm hurting too I just I feel it so emotionally um and I think that with you know the ADHD and the autism the hyper focus and like the desire to learn about neurodiversity because this is you know the line of work I'm in I think it does make me you know, exceptional if there, I don't love the super hero or superpower saying, but if it was a superpower, like, I mean, I'm good with that kind of stuff. I'm glad that I'm learning and writing a course and, and about something that I love and I'm interested in. I get to work every day at something that I love. And I think that's amazing. Oh, that's it. That's, that's almost like um, the golden ticket really, isn't it? If you can, if you can get, find something that you that you like doing and you're passionate about, and then you can go to work and do that as well. It's, you know, it's so much more healthier for yourself. Uh, you know, I love the way you used a, a really important word that I always kind of found, especially with neurodivergence is empathy. I mean, mm. I'm the same, very much the same with like um, at university, uh, 
part of a specific learning differences um, community and just the individuals, like you say, when like when someone's kind of feeling hurt or they've, they've had a real an experience where they talk about it, you kind of feel like you absorb all of that. Like, oh my god, that I can I can actually feel what they're feeling, and I think I, I don't think neurotypical individuals have that level because I think they don't have that understanding as well. Um, I mean, I don't know. Do you, I mean, do you feel feel the same with that, really? I mean, I do feel that neurotypical people really struggle to understand neurodivergent people, whereas we're expected to understand neurotypical people. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, never, it's never kind of one where, you know, it's kind of like they're not supposed to kind of learn much about neurodivergent but they want us to know everything about neurotypical and it's yeah it's never the other way around so it's 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 slightly frustrating really because um say for example someone at university the other day was doing a um like a, a stall about um neurodivergency and they said to someone about um oh would you like to be involved in in this raising awareness for this and the guy just said, oh, well, I'm not getting involved with that shit. And he just thought, that that's the kind of attitude sometimes that's about, you're always going to kind of get that. Um, but for me, that was a kind of, a typical sort of answer that you tend to get, especially um, with individuals who are kind of quite small-minded and don't kind of, if you like, they're kind of only interested in what's going on in their world, not in mm -hmm. the world, really, so... Right, so, like they're asking how how you're doing. Yeah. They don't they don't want to know. No. no, I say they'll you know if if I say to um friend of mine who's neurodivergent and I know one especially, if I say to him, How are you today? You know, are you all right? Yeah, I'm okay, but is this, this, that? And the and then we'll have a little bit of a a back and forth about what's been going on. We'll be honest with each other. But when you ask someone who isn't and say, you know, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right. How are you? Oh, well, but then I think, I don't know if I want to now because the kind of answer you've given me has been quite blunt and, you know, and I know people sometimes have a different way of um, communicating how they're feeling if they're not comfortable with their emotions, but um, I, I definitely feel like neurotypical individuals don't, yeah, like you said, I don't, I don't think they're really they're not bothered by what's, by really how you are or, mm. you know, what's going on with you there. So, coming to the end of the podcast, I normally asked, normally asked one question, but I've started doing two. Um, so the first one is, do you have any podcasts or that you listen to or books that you read, which would be yeah, you maybe recommend for anyone who's listening who's uh, neurodivergent. Oh, um, my goodness. Your Brain's Not Broken um, is a really good book. Uh, Thriving with Adult ADHD and ADHD 2.0. And there's one on neurodiversity, neurodivergent mind. Those, those books are really, really good books. 
Oh, nice. So, so I, I, I like Phoenix and I think, oh, well, I'll have a, I'll have a read of these as well. I'll, I'll, I'll look, um, a look at the, at the podcasts and things. Um, and the second question is one I always asked. And if you could give, um, one nugget of advice to anybody who might be listening, just that one little nugget that you think is most important. What would be that one little nugget of advice you give to someone who might be listening now? Yeah. So for my, for my coaching clients, when they're struggling with say rejection sensitivity, um, I have two little things that I try to tell them if, you know, they're, this person didn't text me back example, you know, going down that rabbit hole. Uh, and one is the benefit of the doubt theory. So that's kind of what you were talking about. Not a coined term. It might be coined somewhere, but it's the term I use in my my program um, where, you know, let's give the person the benefit of the doubt. And then the other um, thing would be the detective. So when you're having rejection sensitivity, if you can step back, I love the example of, um, and I got this from a book that I had read. Have you ever seen a fly trying to get out of a window? And from where you're sitting, it's batting its body against the window. It can't get out from where you're sitting. There's an opening just a little bit over. And if they would just back up, they could see the opening and go through it. I like to use that metaphor with emotions, RSD, emotional dysregulation. If you can back up and take some perspective, there's always another way out. So be the detective about it. That person didn't text you back. How do they treat you on a regular basis? Is this maybe a friendship or a relationship that maybe you need to step back from a little bit, maybe not give such high priority to, or is this someone who's always there for you? And then, you know, in that case, maybe, you know, you're just, you're just looking at things from a very emotional, not a logical lens and, and let's give people the benefit of the doubt a little bit more. We want the benefit of the doubt yet when we feel RSD, we don't give it back. That's brilliant. What a way to end. This has been, say, like another man, man blown tonight. I say it's been some just brilliant conversation. It's a really interesting things coming up. And I say it's great when you kind of have a, have a podcast with, with an individual and then you kind of get to hear their kind of passion come through and also for the fact that they kind of share a little bit of common ground with yourself as well. So thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on and sharing your experiences and I say all the advice as well so, so thank you so much oh thank you so much it's so and, great first podcast I'm really excited. there we go you see <laughs> and for everyone else I'll see you on the next podcast